I'm going to read verses 27 through 30. This is uh, part two to the idea or title of living in between. Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything, by your opponents, that this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This week, uh, I was privileged to attend a chapel that our school here, Grace Christian School, puts on every year. It's a Veterans Day Chapel, and it was just a beautiful display of about 800 veterans or people associated with the military who were here, and then some people who were supportive of the military, children singing, ensembles, etc. One of the most... Uh, inspiring parts of just gathering like that um, that many people is that you have unbelievers there and hearing the gospel um, in our facility and you know it's, it's one of those things where there's a lot of people who won't come to just hear the gospel but put in that context people are hearing it and really wide open to it because people are inspired by the military and the inspiration factor, which really stood out to me, I'm always choking back tears during the Military um, Veterans Day Chapel, um, is that you have veterans who have given their hearts and lives and time and uh, just their all to serve our country. It was sort of the day after the election, you know, um, results came in and it was good to be inspired about our country and the sacrifice that's been made um, by men and women and the spouses that stay behind, the children, the sacrifice that was, that was the atmosphere of that chapel was profound to me. We had probably about 60 or 70 veterans up on the stage passing the microphone one after the other saying, hey, I, I'm glad I served or I'm glad to be serving. Perhaps some said, I, I didn't even know what I was signing up for, but once I was in it, I saw that great sacrifice would follow, and it was worth it to me for our country. And so we were able to pray for them and sort of exult in the Lord for the gift that people give. Well, it's, it's a very similar parallel to the church for me, and I think we see these parallels in Scripture, to find that perhaps Christians, when you believe, you don't necessarily know what you've signed up for. But once you're involved in God's kingdom work, and you realize that you've signed up for the Lord's army, then you recognize that you are called, very similarly, to live a life of sacrifice and to suffer. Suffering is not a popular message in the church today. If you look on, you know, sort of church media, if you look on different networks, you know, cable, TV, um, church cable, <laughs> you, you find that 
the message that you hear often is that you sign up in sort of an easy way, easy front door entrance into the church and into a life of blessing from God. And you sort of are promised health, wealth, and prosperity. The largest church in our country promotes that message. At least it calls itself a church. It's 45,000 people gathered in a stadium each week hearing a message that your life is all about you and you're a Christian so you can be blessed. By contrast, the Bible says that we are called to suffer. We're called to give our lives to Christ. Uh, to, as Christ said in, in Mark, you're called to die daily. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus to the death. That's the gospel. Yeah, I, I don't really know how people divorce suffering from Christianity because Christianity was born through the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, paying the ultimate sacrifice on the cross and suffering a gruesome death so that we could have life. And if you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts is all about the church picking up where Christ left off. He died, he, he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the church takes over and bears the marks of Christ in sacrificial service as the church here on earth. And we're called to that same mission. We're called to do hard things. Christianity is a call to do something hard for God. Now, it's by grace alone that you enter in. But entrance is a call to do something hard. You ever wonder why you see people at times that, you know, they start off so well, they start off so excited to be a Christian, and, and they come in, and they're exuberant, and they go on a missions trip, and, and sacrifice a little bit, you know, dig a few wells for someone, and then, you know, for communities, and then they come back, and suddenly they're kind of falling off the wagon. They've left their spouse. They left their three kids for some younger woman or something like that. And you say, what went wrong? Well, perhaps what went wrong is that the person on the front end didn't understand the hard commitment to follow Christ. It's a hard commitment. Christianity is not easy. You're saved by grace. I'm not promoting any kind of works righteousness. But it's costly grace. It's grace, but then you're paying a price because you want to follow Christ and you're called to do it. You're called to suffer. I remember the story of, you know, the little boy who saw the cocoon, you know, with the struggling butterfly that was trying to come out. And he saw a little hole and he sort of cut a hole there to help the butterfly get out of the cocoon. And during the birthing process, the little boy inadvertently stunted the growth of the wings of the butterfly because the, the whole setup of a cocoon and a butterfly is for the butterfly to press through the small hole which forces the bodily juices into the wings to strengthen them so that the butterfly as an insect can fly. But because he stunted the birthing process, the result was sad where you have an enfeebled bug unable to fly. And I think oftentimes Christians don't realize what they're signing up for in the first place. It's kind of like going to the recruiter's office and you sign the dotted line, you're in the army and suddenly you're, you're in boot camp and that's hard. And then you're in Iraq or Afghanistan and that's even harder. Well, that's sort of what Paul is introducing this healthy church to. He's saying, listen, 
my suffering as a martyr and as a missionary in Rome is the same kind of suffering that you should be involved in as a church. Paul's not asking them to do anything more or less than he's doing, but suffering is not just for the missionary, and suffering isn't just for the pastor. Suffering is not just for the church leader. We're all called to suffer. You might say, well, what are you talking about? I mean, I I don't know that anyone's going to pop me in the mouth for being a Christian. I mean, if you do it in the wrong way, maybe someone will pop you in the mouth here. But, but really, living for Christ brings suffering. It's promised to us. Jesus said, you will suffer. Paul said to Timothy, all who are godly in this life will suffer persecution. It's not if it's coming, it's when. And the question is, how will you respond when it comes? You say, well, what kind of suffering are we talking about? Well, have you ever had someone attack your character? It's, you know, character assassination, whether you know it was for Jesus or not, that happens all the time. People undermine your character. Paul's greatest suffering, I don't think, was physical punishment. It was 2 Corinthians, which is this autobiography of suffering where he's saying, people are trying to undo my apostleship, and this is my thorn in the flesh. I think that's 2 Corinthians. That's suffering. You say, well, why is there suffering in the world? Well, it's because when you bring the accountability of Christ into someone else's life, people will squirm and people will run or people will fight you. That's what happens. Either either through your holy life, through your personal convictions, through your choices that you choose righteousness for Christ rather than lawlessness, or through actually sharing the gospel By taking that kind of stand, it brings an atmosphere of Christ into relationships. And if people aren't choosing Christ with you, they will quite probably be opposed to you. And that is the accountability of Christ, and that's what brings suffering. It's just important, I think, on the front end of coming into Christ and and believing in him that people know what they're signing up for. You're signing up for suffering. You're signing up to do something hard. Hey, let let me just put it this way. Repenting, hard. Being honest about your sin, hard. Sharing Christ with somebody that doesn't want to hear it, hard awkward right being a christian in a family with someone that isn't a believer hard working a job where they're doing unethical things and you're trying to do the right thing and walk a line hard christianity is a call to do something hard for the glory of god you know what's hard too i mean you say well i can do things by god's grace you know well that's true we're supposed to do something hard by God's grace, okay? That we're not, we're not, we don't let ourselves out of it just because, you know, it seems like to be holy is, is unattainable. So it must be this hyperbolic idea that you can't really reach, you know. So it's, it's the 99 percentile that you're supposed to reach for so you, so you hit 29%. No, it, you're called to do hard things for God. For the glory of God. And what's even harder is to rejoice while you're doing it. And this is what Paul calls the church to. This is what Paul is saying is normal. Normal Christian life is a call to suffer. It's not a popular message, but it is the gospel message. Nevertheless, it is. 
So if you look at verse 27, this is the beginning of answering the question, why in the world would you want to do something hard for God? You know, forgive me for quoting the old Dallas Cowboy um, coach Tom Landry, you know. I mean, I, I loved his Christianity anyway, but he always said on the first day of training camp to his team, I'm calling you to do something you never thought that you would do, to become a person that you never thought you could become. Doing something hard. Why would you want to do it? I want to sort of answer this question with four reasons. Four new things about you from this text say why you should do something hard. Number one, you have a new heritage in the gospel. God made you new and gave you a new heritage in Christ. That's why you should do something hard. Verse 27, only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Stop there. Paul is saying, there's one thing I want you to have in mind here. I'm in prison, you know, I'm under house arrest, I'm chained to a guard, I'm down here in Rome, I'm in sort of the epicenter of the Roman Empire, you're, this, you're up in Macedonia in this colony of Rome up there, and, and I want to send this letter to you and say, I, I think I'm coming to be with you. I, I have sort of talked my way clear that I'm probably going to be with you. I'm certain that I'm going to be with you because you, you need me to grow still. And I led you to Christ. You're my, you're my converts, and I, I want you to progress and joy. That's what the context says. But, but then he says, but wait a minute. No matter what happens, whatever happens, there's one idea that I want you to be captivated with. One thing, because I look at the text. It says, I, I want to hear... Whether I come to you or am or absent, I want to hear that you're standing firm, that you're not knocked over. I want you to grasp this. And so how are they supposed to grasp this? Well, they're supposed to grasp, first of all, that they have a new heritage because God made them gospel citizens. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul is saying, listen, you need to take your eyes off of me and sort of jettison any hero worship. Don't put your Christianity um, based on my spiritual leadership or the hope that I'm going to actually come to be with you because I can't determine that outcome. Instead, what I want you to do is grasp who God has made you to be. It's the key to the Christian life is understanding who God has made you to be. The, the word here in your text, it might be conduct, only let your manner of life this word here is a citizenship word. It's the same word Paul used um, in the book of Acts several times, saying, I'm a citizen. I'm a Roman citizen. That's who I am. It's the word polis pathuo, and, and polis there is his word for city or citizen. And he's saying, listen, you need to understand who you are and walk in a worthy way in terms of who God's made you to be. Walk in the worth of who God has made you to be. The word conduct here isn't the word peripateo or like an ethical word where you're doing something. Paul isn't saying climb up the ladder and, and, and live like God has made you to be by earning that rank or status. He's not saying that. He's saying grasp who you are in Christ. 
You see the difference? It's not earning your status. It's grasping the status that you are. It's very important to understand who you are, who God has made you to be. This is what changes your life. Put another way, uh, reflecting on last week's message, it's dual citizenship. It's living between two worlds. It's the idea that you realize that you are suspended between two realms, heaven and earth. Remember I talked about the Bible explains that there are three worlds, two eternal and one temporal. There's heaven, eternal love, and there's hell, which is eternal hate. And there's earth, which is temporary. A mixture, an admixture of joy and pain here on earth because we are cursed by the fall of man. And so while on earth, you are going progressively day by day in one of two directions, either towards heaven because you are a citizen of heaven or towards hell because you are a citizen of hell. You're either an enemy of the cross or you're a citizen of heaven. Um, Philippians 3.20 talks about this, how our citizenship is in heaven. And so grasping, I've got dual citizenship. I'm part of this world. I'm part of the church. I'm, I'm part of this heaven on earth experience. But my heart is pointed towards heaven. That's what he wants them to do. As a church community. This phrase, let your life or let your conduct or manner of life be worthy of the gospel, is repeated in Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians 4. And it's, it's a concept where he's saying, look, you need to sort of balance the scales. You need to say, I'm a Christian first and foremost. And so my life needs to reflect this. I need to value it. Value your Christianity. Valuing the gospel and that transformation, that will change the way you live. The Roman citizens would have understood this. Rome was, um, you know, taking over the world at the time. Charles, um, one writer, William Barclay, said that um, there were little bits of Rome planted all around the world. And in Macedonia, that was a little bit of Rome right there. They were a frontier colony of Rome out there sort of on, on the cusp of things, of advancement. They were vulnerable out there, but they were connected to Rome vitally in manners and customs. But they could have had barbarians come and attack them, but they had the pride of Rome behind them, realizing that they, they're going to take on the world because they're part of Rome. Octavius and Caesar Augustus had planted that place in Macedonia, and so it was Roman expansion. So you... As a Christian, and Paul knew this, that the church would understand this, when Paul was saying to this church, and as I say to you, grasp your citizenship, it was a big deal. It's kind of like us being up here in Alaska. I mean, we're at the top of the world, but we are vitally part of America, the Union, the United States of America. We realize our connectivity to the 50 states. We're non-contiguous because we're out there. We're, we're, we're like a colony out here. But we are the United States, and we can understand this text. In the same way, the church there was saying, okay, I need to grasp my gospel citizenship, realizing that on earth I'm in a heavenly colony, but I'm connected to heaven. I'm connected to the heart of God here on earth, and I need to live that way. Now, let me say it this way, beloved. Only when you grasp your Christianity on those levels, will you really do something hard for God? You're a citizen of heaven. That's what cuts through the day-to-day. -day. That's what puts you out there where you can become aggressive for God. Not 
having a ghetto spirituality that's sort of compartmentalized away from your life, but where you're going for it, for God. Frontier living. Perhaps I can put it this way. Now, I'm no sort of authority on Shakespeare, but I, I was sort of moved by one sort of, sort of quote from one of the plays that Shakespeare wrote. He, it's attributed to him, 1599, and he uh, wrote a series of history plays called the Tetralogy, Richard II, and then you have Henry um, the Fourth, Part One and Two, and Henry V. These are historical plays, and really the, um, the general idea and storyline is you have a father who's king of England, and he's nervous, he's very anxious, because there's this sort of broken relationship um, with friends of his that now have turned from friend to foe, and they want to attack him because Henry V did not make good paying them back what he owed to them. And so this, this neighboring community is, is getting ready to declare civil war against Henry V, and he's so anxious that his beard turns white and he's ready to die. So he's on his deathbed, and then you have Prince Henry, who's going to take over the throne, who up to this point has been carousing, and he's been with this kind of old, you know, sort of drinking knight called Falstaff, and he and Falstaff are, you know, in the bars, and, and they're, you know, he's playing tricks on him, and, you know, they're just sort of partying, you know, this sort of teenager mindset of, of um, Prince Henry, and then suddenly... Prince Henry is faced with sort of the, the, the ice water in his face, cold, stark reality that he's getting the throne and taking over. And so he's got to respond to the fact that he is being called king. And I'm um, sort of taken from Kent Hughes' commentary. Let me just read Kent Hughes' uh, explanation. It says, Prince Henry realizes his unworthiness and that the crown will be his through no virtue of his own. So he confesses to his dying father... He's talking about the crown. He says, quote, You won it, wore it, kept it, and gave it to me. Then upon the crown being given to him, Henry vows to live a worthy life. Listen to this quote. Quote, The tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. End quote. We should have that same sense of gospel citizenship. We are citizens of the king. We are God's ambassadors. We have God's blood flowing through our veins. We, we, are, we are co-equal heirs with God. We represent Christ here on earth. And we are supposed to Live a spiritual life as a gospel community because we are his and we know who we are in Christ. We know who he has made us to be. You might say, I don't get it. Well, perhaps you're, you're new in the faith and young in the faith or maybe you've never grappled with this concept. But understanding your heritage is vitally essential if you're going to do anything for God. And his glory. If you're going to suffer. See, suffering makes no sense unless you understand. No, God made you his here on earth. And so you are a proxy in gospel mission here. And that same kind of pride and, and good pride and sort of um, sense of, of 
worthiness to the mission comes from understanding who you are. Just like somebody in the military who signed up and didn't grasp it on the front end, but then when the bombs are, are you know, blowing up all around, they're on and they're on mission because they realize who they are, who God's made them to be. Uh, the, the closest analogy I can make in my own life is the idea of becoming married. You know, before you're married, you're sort of under your parents, um, you know, headship, and, and you're, you're really massively influenced by your parents, whether you know it or not. Your father, your mother, or, you know, whoever is parenting you is, is putting their imprimatur on your life and soul at one level or another. But the Bible says that when you become married, whenever you become married, at whatever station in life, you leave and cleave. There is a clean break from your parents to your spouse where you become one flesh. You're united spiritually, and that becomes the number one influence in your life. And when I got married, I got married at um, 25, I realized uh, that, you know, even though I wanted to get married before I was 25, once I got married, I realized it was as if I had never not been married because the influence of becoming one flesh with my new spouse was overwhelming to me. It sort of changes who you are. In the same way, when you become a Christian, it should so captivate your thinking as a new gospel citizen that you feel like and think like you've never not been a Christian because it's so profoundly transformational in your life and in your thinking. That's what Paul is saying with this phrase, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Saying, don't worship me. Don't think about me coming to you. Don't let your spirituality rise and fall on me. Focus on who God has made you to be. Then you'll stand. Then you'll stand. Then you'll live out this reality. Well, the first new thing about you is you have a new heritage. And the second new thing about you is you have a new mission. And first off, what he emphasizes here is that you are called to each other. You're called to the community of the faith. That's the number one mission is living in community that's a gospel community. Does that sound dangerous? Does that sound um, like, you know, you're destined for suffering in that? Well, it's hard to live in gospel community if you're doing it biblically. Living in community isn't just showing up to a rally or showing up to a chapel service. It's not just showing up and leaving. It's not even, you know, paying towards the community. Living in community is to become vulnerable with fellow gospel citizens for the sake of a gospel that brings accountability to the world. You're, you're living in community saying, hey, I am in between heaven and earth here rather than in between earth and hell, which is what everybody else is going towards. Everybody else is in that category but Christians. And so you're saying, I am united in the mission of living in between heaven and earth. That's what Paul is saying the church is. Look at this. You're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, community. When I used to think about gospel mission and the way I was raised to believe in a couple churches that gospel mission was, was primarily this, it's that you are called to show up to church and sort of get fired up to go out and speak the gospel to people. That's the mission. I mean, whatever else people said, that was what you heard. You show up, you get fired up to go out 
and speak and say gospel things to people. Now, I believe in speaking the gospel and preaching the gospel. I, I do this for a living. I, I go to uh, the Alaska Club and sit, and sit around with people, and I do share Christ with people. I, I did it, I think, last week or something. I'm sitting there, and somebody's a talker, and they wanted to talk to me, and I went, okay, <laughs> here we go. You know, uh, you know, he was cranky about something and complaining and all fired up, and he was taking somebody else on, and I went, you know, I just love Christ. I love the Lord. You know, that, that's my solution to life's problems and difficulties. You know, and then he sort of cornered me in the locker room, and it's like, and I'm with Logan, and, you know, it's just gospel time. Yeah, I believe in sharing Christ with people. I love to do that. But this verse is as detailed about what we're supposed to do in mission here as Matthew 28, 18 to 20, or Acts 1, 8. Making disciples going out being a witness for Christ to all the world. I believe in all of that. But there is a whole aspect of evangelism that is simply coming together as a church or in community groups or in Bible studies and where you are defending and clarifying the gospel to each other. That is a gospel witness. When anyone sees you do that, that is so radically different, that's a witness. Your life is the epistle, as 2 Corinthians says. You are, you are a living epistle to the world. It's written on your heart just by showing up. It's like joining the service. Um, you know, people know that you join the service if you're in the service, if you're in the military. You, you have a uniform, you have a place you go, you have a mission that you're a part of, and that influences people just by being part of that community. It's even more profound as being part of the Lord's army here. He says that it's coming together as one spirit. One spirit here is, is talking about the spirituality that we have in common. Now that's generated by the Holy Spirit, but we're captivated, we're interconnected with, with each other. One spirit. Have you ever had a gospel-centered relationship? I mean, we have friends with Un, you know, friendships with unbelievers, and, and that's all well and good, but there is a depth of relationship that you can have with believers that you can't have with unbelievers. You can go places that you can't go with unbelievers. I have relationships that span 25 years now, and it's because I've been in the faith a long time. And when you're, when you're in the faith a long time, you have something in common with somebody, no matter what happens to them in their health or their job or their proximity. If you have Christ together, it's going to last. That's what this is talking about. One spirit, one mind, one psyche. It's, uh, it's the word for soul. It's you're one soul together in the gospel. Remember Philippians 1.5, being together for the gospel or having fellowship or participating in gospel community together. It's a major thrust here. You're participating. You're, you're linking on that level. If you're not doing that, you're missing out. Heaven on earth is doing that with people. And by contrast, you should be warned not to bond on those levels with people who believe in a different gospel or no gospel at all because that will drag you away from the faith. Unity. Unity, it, it creates massive opportunities. Look, what, look at the word here, um, the, the verbiage here at the end of verse 27. You're striving side by side for the faith. Literally, you're fighting for this unity. It's, it's talking about struggling together for the sake of unity. It's an athletic term. 
where it's the idea of a team struggling together to, to take the ball across the touchdown line. It, you know, you're working together, no matter what your role is, to get it done. Now, I, you know, you guys know, you've been with me long enough to know I'm a football fan, and, uh, but you might not know this, and some of you, for some of you, this will be a turnoff or mockable, but I'm actually a John Madden fan. I, I like John, I, you know, I admit it. I know he's retired, but I liked him, and, I, you know, he's kind of a goofball. But what I liked about him most of all, and I know that I've just brought back some of you, right, um, but with an analogy like this, but John Madden loved the, the lineman, right? He loved the guy that was, that was just down in the trenches, hitting somebody hard, you know, moving the ball along in the scrum. And uh, that's what he fought for and highlighted. And it was just interesting because you're primarily focused on more the prima donnas and the super athletes who are throwing the ball or catching. But, but the, you know, he would highlight the giant 400-pounder just hitting the line or, you know, smashing people. And I think that's the idea here. It's the idea that we are, no matter what your role is in the church, we're all in it together. Everybody pushing together, pushing forward, progressing together. One mind, one spirit together. And you can, you can accomplish so much when you're unified. When you're divided, it's so hard to move forward or progress. But when you're unified in the gospel, you can do great things. I, from 6 to 8 a.m. every morning, we, we sort of have the, you know, Jeff and Judy Crotz circus where we're trying to put together five kids, uh, five out of six kids on the way to school. And we never know how we're going to get there, you know, at, at 6 30 or whatever but you know it's like when you're working in unity and you have sandwich makers and you know people grabbing backpacks and homework getter dunners and you know spelling lists are being called out and you're you're going after stuff and you know pencils and papers are flying all around Uh, you know when we're working in concert together you can get a lot accomplished quickly and that's what we have to be as a church a church that's working in concert together but not just working together but working together look at this for the faith of the gospel that's a very important phrase you have two definite articles there the faith the gospel this is like a parallel reference to jude 3 which says that we are to contend for the faith you can you can amass a lot of people under a roof in the name of relationships or good programs but what you want to rally behind when you gather together in this kind of unity is the gospel. There's only one gospel, and it's worth fighting for. Paul told Timothy, guard the sacred trust. Contend for the faith. You say, why is that important? Well, we defend the faith because there are people who want to take it out. Satan, he sort of is behind the scenes raising up either cults or, or people who are not named as cults who want to sort of undo the gospel. Postmodernism, you know, all roads lead to heaven. Let's just sort of water it down. And you can gather a lot of people under a roof with a watered down gospel. But by contrast, we're called to guard the truth. Why? Because the truth is what sets people free. The truth is what gets people in heaven. The truth is the seed that gets people to be between the two worlds of earth and heaven rather than earth and hell. It's the word of God. That's what transforms people's lives. And so we have to guard it. If we live in a morally depraved world, and you see this moral depravity in politics and, I mean, the sin of our nation, abortion. I mean, it really is. I mean, just, just children 
being doomed in their most vulnerable situation ever, in the, in the womb of the mother, where they should be most protected, are just doomed because of a society that does not want accountability. And so if the gospel is bringing the accountability of God to our world, do you think people want to undo that? Do you think people want to water that down? You know, if we live in a society that, that is promoting multiculturalism and, and multi, you know, sort of spiritualities, and you have a gospel that says, no, it's only one way to heaven, it's through Christ. It's good news because it can undo people's situation where they are presently under the wrath of God, and this is the one thing that can undo it, and Satan does not want that to happen. And so it's the church's goal and mission to guard and protect and defend the gospel. We do it by being committed to each other and by, by being clear on doctrine. You say, why study doctrine? You know, once you get the gospel and you're in, who cares, right? No, it's, there's a, it's an ongoing marathon race to stand for the gospel so that people will not stumble, so that people will be preserved in truth. People fall away from the gospel all the time. You have to be clear in the gospel. In this context, when people would say, hey, Jesus is Lord, not Nero. Nero isn't Lord. I know he's the Caesar, but, but Jesus is Lord. What well, got dangerous when you do that. When you say Jesus is Lord, not you, you're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not Mother Nature. Jesus is Lord. Right? When you say that, people will push back. So what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to band together. Look at this. Um, Verse 28. You know, we're committed to each other. We're committed to clear doctrine. And we're given a new power because God has strengthened you to face gospel opponents. There's going to be attackers. Look at this. It says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. We're called to be fearless. We're called to give that sort of athletic stare down. <laughs> Not in arrogance, but, you know, where, where you're an athlete and you know you can win. You know you're going to dominate and you give the stare down. And it gives intimidation. Well, Paul is saying, look, don't be frightened because opponents and attackers are going to come. They're going to try to, they're going to, try to undermine church. They're going to try to undermine gospel community and fracture it from the inside out or attack it from the outside in. And you've got to be fearless. There's sort of a comprehensive negative here. You're not supposed to be frightened by anything. There's two negatives in this original language. You're not supposed to be undone by anyone because you're confident in the gospel. You know what this does? It creates strong protection. Now, um, Phil Cochran, you're over there somewhere. Yeah, hey, I'm going to use an illustration that that he gave me. We went out to lunch and... um, those of you that know Phil, um, he's got the great Canadian accent, and he started to tell me about the musk oxen, you know, and, and, and sent me a link this week that I asked for um, to sort of illustrate this. How do you stay strong as a church? Well, it's by being together for the gospel and not frightened away when opponents come, when the heat comes on. And the, the video was um, about musk oxen that were, you know, I think in Alaska, and, and it's sort of a... You know, it's, it's a short video, but it, it's time-lapse, so it, it spans probably an hour or so of video footage. And it's um, people watching musk oxen 
surrounded or, or encircled with their horns out on a road and sort of in this, you know, desolate place in um, snowy Alaska. And then over about 30 yards, you see a brown bear just sitting there like this. And yeah, I mean, you can Google it later. But and the brown bear is just staring at, at this crowd of musk oxen, and, and they're protected. And all the, the mamas and babies are all nestled in the middle of that, and they're protected as long as they are unified and encircled with horns out, committed to staying unified. But what happens after time, as you know, is some chinks, you know, are in the armor and some things fall apart and they begin to move and fragment and fracture and suddenly the babies are exposed and there goes the brown bear and you hear the person over the, you know, the videotaping saying, oh, I don't even want to watch this. Because the bear's just ripping into, you know, the different baby muskox. And, you know, it's tragic, you know, in the moment, but it's just, you know, the nature of things. But it's a great picture, I think, of the church in that if we are unified, if we're one-souled, one-minded, committed to one true gospel, we're protected. We're not only protected, but we're also evangelizing. We don't have time to go here, but Jesus in John 17 in his high priestly prayer said, look, I don't want to take them out of the world. I want them to remain in the world. He was praying for believers then and later on. All believers stay in the world but sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he says, the reason I want them to stay in the world and be unified and sanctified in the truth, that they would be one, is so the world would believe. What's evangelism? Being united in the gospel. People can't argue with that. When, you, when you're a community that's warmly committed to each other, warmly committed to the word of God, not ashamed of the gospel together, People go, wow, I want what they have. They've got something that is timeless and powerful, something that, that feeds the soul. I think it's easy for us to get duped by the world. You know, oh, the world's so happy, and here we are having to suffer. Well, they're suffering in their hearts. Their consciences are unresolved. They need the gospel. People are hurt. Just remember when you were an unbeliever, dissatisfied. Yeah, you know, there's moments of height and excitement, and then poof, you're just bummed and vacuous and empty you need something and then you get saved and you go this is the pearl of great price this is treasure and i'm excited and and i'm willing to suffer for it on behalf of it for the glory of god because my kingdom is not of this world i'm going somewhere else and so that's what fills that out this kind of commitment to live in between two worlds together in community is a powerful witness don't underestimate the power of being unified in the gospel. Well, we've been given a new power, and when, when you tap into this power and you live in unity, it's a clear sign of two things. It's a dual sign. Look at this quickly. Verse 28. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. That's eternal destruction, by the way. When you're unified and your opponent's going, oh, I can't penetrate, they eventually lose heart. They may turn it to physical violence, but eventually they're going to go, man, I'm sort of disheartened in my attack. And, and it's a clear sign that they're on the road to hell. And they need Christ. They need a Savior. Paul, just, just so you know, Paul's not being haughty here against those who are being clarified as part of um, those who will be destroyed. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. He says that even with tears, 
He's talking about enemies of the cross of Christ. So he cried over people who were in this state. He wasn't proud or arrogant about it, but it's a clear sign that certain people are on the road of perdition. And then, on the other hand, it's powerful assurance of your salvation. It says, but of your salvation, in other words, this kind of unity where you're fearless, of your salvation, that, and that from God. In other words, you know you're saved when you're in this kind of community, when you're in this kind of mindset, when you're together for the gospel, when you're enjoying the fellowship of the gospel together. It buoys you up. You say, I don't have the assurance of salvation. Well, are you in a gospel relationship with anyone? Are you learning the gospel with anyone? Are you strengthened by a gospel friendship? That's where the assurance of salvation comes. Learning about the gospel, that's where the assurance of salvation comes. It's not just learning it on a third grade level. I'm reading a book this week in preparation for Philippians 2. It's called The Glory of the Cross by Leon Morris. He wrote it in 1960-something, but people always talk about this book. I found it on my shelf. It's 90-some pages. I'm blasting through it, and it's deepening me in the gospel, and it strengthens my heart as a sign to me that I am a Christian, that God saved me. He's the author of all salvation. Well, when you are united in this way, you represent eternal outcomes in this way to people. And then finally, verses 29 through 30, you're, you're given a new privilege. The reason you do something hard, the reason you suffer is because you realize God reveals it to you that it's a privilege to do it for the glory of Christ. He reveals that suffering is a gospel privilege. Well, how is it a privilege? Literally, the wording here in verse 29, granted, he's granted it to you, is the word grace. It's grace to you to suffer. In what way? Well, think about the hardest times in your life. What was the hardest thing that ever happened to you? What is the hardest thing you're going through right now? That's the very thing God's using to make you more like him. Hard times where you didn't think you were going to make it through and then you did make it through make you like Jesus. That's James 1, 1 and 2, 1 Peter 5 and 6. 1 Peter 1, 5 and 6. St. Clair Ferguson put it this way. He's a great theologian. He put it this way. He said, quote, Suffering is friction. It's friction. Which polishes our graces. Without it, without suffering, we would be all the poorer as reflectors of the image of his son. And then lastly, the, it's suffering is grace because it brings glory to Christ. Paul is saying, look, just enter into what I'm doing. I'm doing it for the sake of the name. I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not doing. I'm nothing special. Look at verse 30. He says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's saying, look, you know, whether, whether it's Lydia, whether it's, um, you know, the Philippian jailer, they saw that he had suffered. They knew the demonized woman, Acts 16, they knew he suffered. They knew that he had been beaten. They knew he was in, in house arrest prison right now. He said, look, just do it as the church, together in gospel community. Face the opponents together. Do what I'm doing. Enter into this suffering because it's for the sake of Christ. Who's the ultimate dual citizen? Paul? Pastors? No. 
There's one that we should look to to live this out, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate dual citizen. He was the citizen of heaven. He's the second member of the Trinity, enthroned there, gloriously enthroned. And he took on flesh and became also a citizen of earth. The eternal son took on flesh so that he could suffer, so that he could suffer an ignominious death on the cross, so that he could, he could be a slave, taking on the form of a servant, Philippians 2. He emptied himself, became of no reputation. Jesus Christ is our example of dual citizenship. He did something Hard. He did the ultimate hard thing by taking on your wrath, your judgment, your sin onto himself. It's the great exchange where he gave you his righteousness in exchange for your sin and my sin and suffered the penalty of retribution, death on the cross on your behalf so that you could go free. That's the great Exchange the ultimate dual citizenship. He did it in community. He came here and was in um, complete obedience to the will of the Father, in perfect community with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is a mystery to us, how God was the perfect, spirit-filled, spirit-led God-man, called by the word of God, he was the word of God, communicated truth, protected and clarified the gospel at all expense, fearlessly opposed opponents, face-to-face, toe-to-toe, with all kinds of people, fearlessly putting himself at personal risk, not backing down, not frightened, suffering for the glory of his Father. He lived this out perfectly. And I'm calling you to live this out because God has made you a citizen of the kingdom of God. Believe it. Let that belief influence you in the way you live. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for time and your word, and I pray that if.